And that said, hey, Penny, so we have Vince on the line here. What do you want to ask him? For new investors, uh, would you say that the new investors need to sort of learn every step of the process before they go ahead and find somebody to partner or joint venture with? You have to know a little bit about everything so you know what you can do and what you can't do. Because then what's going to happen is you're going to get a deal under contract and then people are going to start asking you stuff, lenders or whatever, and you're going to have no idea what they're talking about and you're not going to know who to go get. And then now you're scrambling for people to, on your team uh, to get on your team to that can you know wear this hat for you. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. This is journal entry number 48 and part of our Ask the Expert series. Keep listening to hear experienced investor Vince Gethings and aspiring investor Penny Lubinsky talk about how creativity can help you get deals done. And now, the show. All right, welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. I'm very excited for today's show. It's one of our Ask the Expert episodes, and we have two amazing people on the line with us right now. We've got a guy with a ton of experience in real estate and uh, the United States Air Force, you know, Vince Gethings and a very motivated and energetic aspiring investor, Penny Lubinsky. Vince is a co-founder and COO of Tri-City Equity Group. In just four years, Vince has scaled from a $0 down VA home loan to 120 units valued at over $5 million in assets under management. He specializes in market research, due diligence, strategic planning, project development, and execution, and all while being active duty in the Air Force, correct? Correct. Yeah, great. Well, Vince, that's impressive, and uh, you know, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. So why don't we start out with you telling us a little bit about your background, your history, up until you decided that you really wanted to pursue apartment investing. Got it. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned earlier, I did the the VA uh, zero down. And if you're a veteran out there or active duty and you're not house hacking your, your VA home loan, I highly encourage you to get educated on that because it's uh, one of the best wealth building tools that we have that goes very underutilized um, for, for veterans. So that's what I did was I bought a, a single family house in Travis Air Force Base is where I was stationed. Uh, it's Bay Area, California. Uh, did a live-in flip on that for about three or four years. Cashed out of that, had uh, about 130 grand to start with. And at that time, I was like, I really don't want to mess this up. Uh, and I was like, I want to do this again. I want to, I want to keep replicating this. Um, but I was looking for something more passive. At the time, all I knew was bigger pockets. So mm-hmm. when I'm bigger pockets, burned through dozens of hours of forums, uh, read all Brandon Turner's books. So kind of got my vision together of like, okay, I'm going to buy a bunch of duplexes. Uh, and that's what I did. I took the 130 grand, uh, went back to, to Michigan where my wife is from and we bought about 20 units, uh, in about 18 months, uh, all small multifamilies, the, the duplexes and, and fourplex, everything like that. Um, in about 2018, uh, is where I had about 20 units. Now, and then Brent, Brendan hit. Turner talks a lot about the Burr method. Did you try to burr these or did, were, did no, you use a different strategy? Um, I didn't burr them as far as uh, one of those R's, like the rehab. Mm-hmm. I bought pretty stabilized, like light value add where we just went in and for under market rent, stuff like that, but not mm-hmm. nothing like we're doing full rehabs. So, so no no heavy lifting, just just minor minor repairs here and there. 
And, for, for the uh, most part, we at one of the buildings, and I'll, I'll talk about that um, with why I switched to large multifamily, mm-hmm. um, upgraded some units, but yeah, not, nothing like full rehabs. Okay. Yep. So uh, that was 2018. And then uh, from 2018, I got into, I realized I kind of hit a plateau or hit a wall mm-hmm. and didn't know. I knew enough that there was a bunch of mi- information I was missing, uh, but I didn't know what it was. So I was like, there, there's more out there. I need to find it. And then that's when I got into some, some coaching programs, did that. And then I went from 20 units to added a hundred units in a year. Um, once I, you know, kind of opened that, that window of uh, large multifamily. Yep. Uh, so now we're at 120 units and looking to uh, continue to scale. Nice. Nice. So, so what flipped the switch for you between the small and the large multifamily? Uh, so many things. Literally everything is uh, is better in large multifamily. Uh, so one of the one of the things was the um, scalability of it and, and the how creative you can be on structuring deals at large multifamily. I was really attracted to. There's pretty much an endless way of how you can uh, structure deals with the joint ventures, partnerships, syndication. There's so many tools that you can put in your tool belt to close an apartment complex versus a, a duplex. So that's one thing that really attracted me to it. Uh, one of the things that kind of broke the the camel's back was, um, as I mentioned a second ago, with the the rehab. So my first property was a four unit. Mm-hmm. Um, we went in and I, I put about fifty grand into it of upgrading the units. Raised rents like one hundred and fifty dollars each uh, each unit. So which is a pretty big bump for uh, this class property in this location. Yep. And I thought I was killing it. I was like, okay, I, I invested this much capital. Raised rents one hundred and fifty dollars. I'm killing it. This place is cash flowing. Two years later, I went to go uh, refinance that place and it was worth the same exact amount as I bought it from uh, <laughs> two years earlier. And I was like, how is this possible? I showed him like, look, I raised rents, you know, $600 a month and I improved the quality. I put all this CapEx in the roofs, the windows, the, all this stuff. And they said, it doesn't matter. We, we do, you know, it's a, it's a residential, it's comp yeah. value approach. And you have the only four unit in the neighborhood. So it's worth 170,000. There are uh, no so that comps was, at all. Wow. Yeah. So that was the, they, they, they got their comps from duplexes and kind of like extrapolated or interpolated the, what the value would be. Mm-hmm. And that is uh that's pretty much the, the last straw. I was like, I'll never do a residential property again because of that, because there's, you don't have that forced appreciation where you do with apartment complex, you can raise the NOI and, mm-hmm the property is going to be worth X amount more and it's, you know, undisputable. Like if you can show them, look, the NOI was this, now it's this, here's the cap rate. This is what the property is now worth. And nobody's really going to argue yeah. uh, with that. So that was the, uh, that was the last straw for me on residentials. And I was like, I'm going all in, uh, in large multifamily. I just have to figure out how to get there. Yeah. And so that's where the coaching program come, came in, uh, learned all the tricks, JV'd a 52 unit. Mm-hmm. uh, in beginning of 2019. And then we just closed another 48 unit, um, April of 2020. Okay. Sounds like about 120 units under 20 of them are your personal ones in the Michigan area. And then roughly a hundred, I think if the math, if the math works out right, that's a hundred exactly. Right. Yeah. 48 and 52. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Good, good. My, my arithmetic still works. Yeah. You know, so you bring up some really good points that, that I just like to highlight, you know, the, the, di- the different way of evaluating properties for residential and residential is anything up to four units. 
you know, they, they use a comparative method approach where they're looking at what's left and right and what those are valued at. And, you know, I love, love how you brought up, you know, commercial real estate, there's this forced appreciation thing where if you raise rents and you raise that net operating income, you're adding to your bottom line. And I mean, if, if that were a five unit property that you had, Vince, I mean, you would have been able to increase the value significantly mm-hmm. and go back and, and do a probably a pretty, pretty significant cash out refi after raising the rents that much. Well, good. So uh, let's let's talk about one of the projects you've done recently, either that, that JV, uh, the 48 or the 52, if I got mm-hmm. the unit numbers right. So you can give us a little more detail on yeah, that. Yeah, bo- both of those. Um, I can touch on both of them because I'm, I'm, like I mentioned earlier, I love mm-hmm. solving problems and being yep. creative. And both of these deals were actually pretty, um, had, had their sets of problems. So the 52 unit was more unique, so I'll hit that one first. Okay. So the 52 unit was actually three properties geographically kind of grouped together. Uh, in Michigan, it was an eight unit, a 12 unit and a 32 unit, all, all within the same kind of area. So selling as a portfolio. And at the time I thought I had 20 units and, uh, some money that I'd be credible going to a commercial bank. They're like, Oh, that's great. You can, you know, claim the sandbox properties, but <laughs> what makes you think you can close a, you know, $1.5 million deal? Um, just cause you bought some duplexes one time. And so I I needed the credibility. So what I did was I went out, got three partners, uh, formed the, the joint venture. And then to show them that we were credible, I was like, look, I'm going to buy your eight unit cash. And that mm-hmm. got their attention. So I put down, uh, it was like 246,000 cash, bought the eight unit cash. And I was like, now we have this cash and you know, we're serious. Um, that'll give me time to work on the commercial financing for the other 12 and the 32. Because uh, I sent not only with the sellers that I had to build up credibility with the commercial lender, I also had to build build up credibility and showing them I can operate and close a, a property that big and, and um, manage it. So that got everybody's attention, and it took me uh, a couple months, like another two months, to sort out the the twelve and the thirty two. And what I did was once I got the financing structured in that way and, and negotiated the rest of the the properties down to a price that we could close on, mm-hmm. I took the eight unit and cross collateralize that and use that as the down payment for the 12 and the 32. So when we closed on the, the, the final deal and wrapped the 52 units back together, we only came out of pocket another like $1,200 or something like that wow. uh, to close the 52 unit. So that is a way to like kind of, kind of thinking out of the box, always thinking creatively, how can yeah. you solve problems? How can you close this deal? And that so, was one of the way I got over that credibility hurdle. That's nice. You know, I, I like what you did there. That, that was actually extremely creative. I mean, you had that eight unit, um, owned it outright, paid cash for it. And you know, I loved how, you know, you ended up putting in on the mortgage. I assume you had one loan for all three properties. Is that what you did? Yeah, not now. Yeah, now we do. So once we collateralized, we did yep. like almost like a double closing yep. at, at the final day and yep. wrapped everything back up into one loan. Okay. And then you used, you, you, since the loans are, are loan to value, you were able to use all the, all the tapped up equity in that one property to be able to use that as but essentially your down payment uh, yep. and, and your closing costs on the property, which yeah, I, I think is brilliant. You know, so, so basically the loan, the funds from the loan ended up paying all the closing costs and you put in about 1200 bucks to close on, on the rest. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I love that. I think that's that's absolutely brilliant, and uh, it's, it's not something I would have thought of immediately. You know, buying that, paying cash, but uh, um, it worked for you guys, and you know, I love it. So, all right. What about the other one? 
The other one, so the 48 unit in El Paso. So that one was, uh, that started out as a 96 unit uh, that we originally got under contract. And when we went there, uh, to, we flew there, got on the ground there and realized that um, it wasn't really 96 units. It was kind of like 48 units here and then another 48 units on a different parcel that they mm-hmm. like kind of broke down the wall between them and called it one apartment complex. But the, there were two completely different uh, apartment complexes. One was built in like 1984 mm-hmm. and the other was built in like 1962. Okay. Um, so completely different uh, class uh, of product. This was like a, a very distressed C, uh, almost, you know, C minus. And this one was a, you know, C plus could be B um, if we did the work right. So, or a C could be C plus, mm-hmm. right. If we did our reposition. Uh, so we ended up carving out the the 60s uh product and focus all of our attention on the the nicer the 84 unit mm-hmm. um that one that we did our first syndication um i don't we probably could have figured it out without doing a syndication but we really wanted to get that notch mm-hmm. uh on our belt and, and get that in our resume of uh having the syndication uh successfully completed so we have that tool in our tool belt um for next time so again it's not uh little caveat on that. Like I don't see um, syndication as like a pinnacle, like a, a triangle, like that's the top of uh, real mm-hmm. estate strategy. I think it's just another tool in yeah. the belt. Like if you can close a deal with the JV or a uh, partnership or seller financing, it's whatever tool you need to close a deal. Yeah. This I, one, I, I really, we really wanted to do a syndication to get that experience on a, on a resume. Uh, and that way we just did a 80, 20 split. Mm-hmm. Um, we put a bunch of money down on the, the LP side as well. And that one was very um, light value add, push rents up, uh, update the units, and fill fill all the, the vacancies. We took it over, I think, with like 12 vacancies mm-hmm. on 48 units. Um, and our apartment uh, manager there, he's absolutely crushing it. We're, we've, and we'll go into the COVID underwriting here in a bit, but yeah. when we, we brought back our, our assumptions because of COVID, and he was like, I think, you know, I think we still perform like we keep the underwriting conservative, but I'm going to crush it. And it, it's been since April. So four months. And he is absolutely like we're already like rounding year two of our pro forma um, because he's absolutely crushing with how much uh, he was able to do, like add additional income with pet fees, mm-hmm. rubs, raise rents, fill units, uh, our occupancy rates and everything like that. So uh, that property is going off. Um, uh, extremely well. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we, we have a similar one we closed on in June. You know, we, we got, uh, you know, one full month under our belt plus a little more, but, uh, you know, same issue. We, we came in with, uh, you know, the occupancy in the 80s and mm-hmm. our property managers also crushed it. We've raised a lot of rents. We've raised, we've um, renewed a lot of leases um, and we've also added utilities back into what the the tenants are, are paying. So um, we've significantly increased our NOI same much the same manner you did and the nice part is is with our COVID underwriting we had like a zero percent rent growth exactly you know, for, for year one so that's exactly what we did as well we we uh I don't know if you want to roll right into that but yeah so our our COVID assumptions that we did so I think we got under the contract around um around the end of February so normal normal kind of underwriting for for a C-class property and then kind of March hit and then we're like, Oh, what's going on? <laughs> and then, uh, so we had to kind of hit the brakes once everything like state started, uh, get shut down and we pretty much scrapped our entire underwriting and we had to start over. And when we, we started over under, I, the way I went into my underwriting is I called a bunch of people smarter than me 
mm -hmm. a bunch of my mentors and coaches and stuff like that and other people that are operating, especially in Texas and asked them what they were do, uh, doing. And then I kind of averaged everybody's mm -hmm. assumptions out. Uh, and that's what we did. So we ended up with 30% uh, vacancy for year one and tapered down to, you know, 15 year two, um, around the 10 for year three, four and five, something like that. Yeah. We did 0% rent growth. Um, and if we were getting uh, any units that were getting a premium uh, over market, we did a, actually a 10% uh, negative rent growth. So mm. offering concessions on the people that were giving, yeah. that were already paying a premium. Um, we did no additional income. Mm -hmm. So we like, we're not going to do rubs this year. We're not going to do pet fees, moving fees, whatever fees, uh, cable fees. Um, we canceled uh, pretty much all of that in our underwriting for the first year and then turned the conversion rate down. Um, cause I normally do like 50% the first year, we turned it down to like 25% mm -hmm. in year two for actually converting to those additional incomes. Yeah. What else? I think that was it. Those are the big ones, uh, yeah. that's gonna, gonna affect. And then on the other side of it, uh, our lender on the, like the last minute, he was like, we want 12 months of reserves upfront. So that pretty much torpedoed the deal, mm -hmm. uh, at that point. So with our extra conservative underwriting and then coming up with like another 75 grand on the, in the 11th hour, um, when, you know, funding is closed, you know, sub subscriptions closed and everything like that. Like, okay, we got to, again, solve problems. That's what I like yep. uh, to do. So put on the coffee, figure it out. And what we ended up doing was we ended up getting a seller credit, um, at closing that included, uh, a full month's rent, not prorated. Mm -hmm. So that helped out about, uh, 15 grand, uh, okay. working capital at closing. Um, and then I did another, uh, 75 grand, um, credit at closing on top of that, which nice. was, and I did a credit versus a price reduction to have cash to be able to, yeah, to be able to have that cash go diverted yeah. to the lender and which I assume the lender kept in reserve, you know, they, they, they exactly. It's an escrow yeah. account just yeah. sitting. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that hurts <laughs> just to see it just like not working, not doing anything. It's just sitting there. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's good. You can sleep at night, but at the same time, that money's not working. Yeah. Um, but to be able to get that much work and capital uh, as a credit at closing versus a price reduction was key to closing that deal. Um, and, and we were able to go back, close the deal and have uh, well, well capitalized at closing. We, um, we calculated it was like 20 months of uh, pity reserves nice. at closing. So we could weather a hurricane a long um, storm cash, yeah. a very long storm. Yeah. You know, we, we were fortunate on our COVID closing to not have to deal with that. Um, we were assuming uh, a Freddie Mac loan from the previous owner. And, you know, since we were assuming the loan, the lender's like, no, this loan's already in the books. We're just changing names on it. We don't need any extra, you know, any extra guarantees on it, any extra money. So, uh, we, we dodged a bullet on that one. I mean, had we been doing an agency, I mean, it was agency debt, but had we been pursuing our own agency debt, you know, um, yep. yeah, you, you never know. Um, I wonder if it would have, would have worked out or I wonder if, you know, we'd have been able to still make it work with, with that large of a, um, uh, yeah, a, a reserve for the lender. So, yep. well, good. So let's, uh, let's introduce our next guest, uh, Penny Lubinsky. Uh, Penny's an entrepreneur and multifamily real estate syndicator. He studied business management at Farley Dickinson University and then went on to be a sales representative for a building supplies company. Uh, he's promoted to a business development manager where he supervised and grew a sales team that grossed over $5 million annually in sales. So that said, Penny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Got yeah. a lot here. 
Yeah, you know, happy happy that uh, you you asked me on the show, and you're glad to be able to talk to you again. So, um, why don't we do this? Do, we'll start the same same way we do with Vince. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your history up until you really decided that apartments would be something you're pursuing? Sure. Okay. So I basically started out um, going to college for business, went into sales um, for a building janitorial supply company. Mm-hmm. Um, was eventually promoted to sales manager and I, I think there was one point that really made me, um, that was pretty eye-opening to me and made mm-hmm. me uh, sw- sort of switch courses. And it was that this one time um, as sales manager, I was interviewing um, some potential sales representatives and there was this one candidate that came in and he was probably upper 60s and he was basically crying to me <laughs> saying that he had just been laid off and like he was working in this you know business for 40 something years and you know he was really desperate and really wanted the job and um you know whether it worked out or didn't is not really part of the story the main point is that that really had opened up my eyes to notice and, and be like hey wow this is crazy like this guy you know in his 60s is is you know, really not secure financially. He's worked at a regular nine to five his whole entire life and he still doesn't understand it. And he's just going to go and and do it all over again. You know, the same way we're supposedly taught to do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that sort of like opened up my eyes, like, wow, there there must be a a different way. I know I'm still young and like a lot of people come to this realization, you know, later in life that, you know, sort of the Robert, Robert Kiyosaki um, way, which is uh, have, the money work for you and passive income and cash flow as opposed to you work for your job and just be a slave to, to the nine to five routine. So that really um, got me inspired and that really, you know, uh, woke me up and, and had me, you know, say in my head, like, I do not want to be like that guy. Yeah. And I felt so bad for him also. Like it, it was just so sad. So um, the first thing I did was I started reading um, everything I can get my hands on, um, tons of books I, as well. Uh, like Vince said, I was on Bigger Pockets a lot, uh, reading every article, every blog, every webinar, uh, listening to pretty much every podcast in the car. And um, so I got that like basic education and uh, sort of like most people do. Um, I decided that a single family residential house would be the way to jumpstart the you know, financial yeah. career. So um, what I did was I, I went out there and I researched some markets and we found a um, pretty nice deal actually in Allentown, Pennsylvania. It was one family, one unit. Um, uh-huh. That was a little over a year ago and um, it went well and everything went exactly as planned actually. We collected our rent, um, the, the actual the, the price, the value of the home definitely did appreciate um, over the year and change. Um, initially, I planned on holding it long term. But um, in middle of that time, actually, um, in the beginning of sort of when COVID started, that's when mm-hmm. I really started thinking about, hey, like, it would take me, you know, probably hundreds of, or thousands yeah. of, trans- yeah. of, of transactions for, in order for me to achieve my financial goals this way. So I was like, something needs to change. There's got to be a better way than this, even though it's good, but there's got to be a better way. Yeah. Um, that's when I started opening my, up my eyes specifically to the syndication and multifamily, um, you know, part of real estate. And um, I've been trying to, you know, learn everything possible, again, with uh, podcasts, blogs, books, um, everything, but specifically focusing on multifamily. So um, that's pretty much uh, where I stand. I sold that um, house in Allentown. Mm -hmm. Um, We did well on it. It was obviously a small property, but we did well. And the reason why I sold it was because 
I didn't want it to be a distraction for me. I didn't want it to be like, oh, there's another one on the next block, just buy another one and then you'll have two. And then, you know, maybe you can buy a duplex someday and have four. Like, I didn't want that to be a distraction. I wanted to be able to focus solely on multifamily. So we just got that sold. And this is uh, pretty much where I stand right now. Nice, nice. You know, and there, there's a lot of similarities, I mean, with with, with the two of you and, and with my story. I mean, I started with single family as well. And uh, Vince, oh, by the way, I used my VA loan for my, my first investment property, you know. So um, bought my first investment property as a primary residence and, you know, bought the next one as a, you know, a, a, in a different city um, after moving um, with an FHA loan as my primary residence and just, just went building like that. But I think, uh, I think, Everybody who moves into multifamily that started with a single family usually has the same story. They just realize that, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to do this a hundred times to, to be able to get where I need to go. And that just doesn't, you know, for, for a lot of people, doesn't seem reasonable. And that said, hey, Penny, so we have Vince on the line here. What do you want to ask him? Okay, so I guess one question that, that I would have is um, for new investors, for people looking to get into this uh, multifamily syndication space, um, something that I've been wondering about and I've spoken with other uh, aspiring investors about was, uh, would you say that um, the new investors need to sort of learn every step of the process um, before they go ahead and find somebody to partner or joint venture with? Or do you think you need to find something that you know you're good at, your strong point, stick to that, find somebody right up front? And I, I believe Brian did it this way. Um, I don't think there's a right or wrong. I'm just curious to hear the different perspectives. But do you think maybe uh, it makes sense to find somebody that they're good at one thing, you're good at something else right up front, right off the bat, and sort of work from there? A uh, bit of both. So I think you don't... Okay, first, you need to know at least aware of every single process. Uh, you can't be on a team member uh, or a team, for, especially with syndication, because there's there's so many moving parts and now you're dealing with the government SEC. Like you need to be aware of everything. You don't need to be an expert at it or actually executing each piece of that puzzle. Um, but you need to know like what's going on with the SEC attorney, what's going on with, you know, how, how to get, uh, you know, agency debt and stuff like that. So maybe not be an expert at it because then you're going to get into this, like whatever you want to call it, analysis paralysis where you're just constantly learning, but you're not actually doing deals and you think you're busy, but you're not. And the like, years go by and you're like, Oh, I need to learn financing. So I'm going to do that for a month. At some point you just got to jump in and do a deal. So I would say you need to know a little bit about everything going in. The next part is when you're talking about team members. So what I normally tell people, this is, this is the system I normally do is start with the personal audit of, so get like an Excel sheet or anything like that. And then you put down there, okay, what do I like doing and what do I not like doing, right? So I like talking with people and, you know, going out to events and conferences and dinners and lunches and meeting brokers and, you know, that extrovert people person, right? And I hate spreadsheets, okay? Like something like that or the other way. I'm an introvert. I love solving problems, locking myself in a room with a pot of coffee for, you know, hours on end and solving really complex problems. And I don't like, you know, small talk and chumming up about what your kids do on whatever sport. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not the yeah. investor relations person, right? Uh, so that personal audit of uh, what do you like doing and what do you don't like doing? And then you go into what are you good at? So what's your strengths and what, what are your weaknesses? Okay. And then what, uh, what value are you bringing to the table? So I kind of, in my head and in real, 
I actually do an Excel sheet of this, of, you know, each column, right. And then the strengths and weaknesses, and then uh, what value you're bringing to the table. So in a, in a syndication or any kind of real JV partnership, uh, people are wearing, you know, hats, like who's finding the deal. That's a hat. Who's putting up the at-risk capital. Uh, that's a hat. You know, who's the, who has the net worth, um, or the KP, you know, that's a hat. Who's going to operate the deal. You know, that's a hat. Uh, who's going to uh, attract capital and raise, raise the funds or has the, the network to, to raise funds. You know, that's a hat. Um, and you got to figure out which ones can you wear, right? Cause if you don't have, you know, a, a two, three, $4 million net worth, you're not wearing the KP hat and you can't fake that. So you're going to need to find somebody that can wear that hat. But if you're, if you're that boots on the ground operator and you're going to be like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the one that finds the deal. I have, you know, maybe, uh, whatever, 50 grand, I can put the at-risk capital up and mm-hmm. I'm going to be the, the asset manager boots on the ground. So those three hats are the ones that you know you can wear. Um, so you need, you need to find the other ones. And then back to what I was saying before, you only, you have to know a little bit about everything. Uh, so you know what you can do and what you can't do. Um, cause then what's going to happen is you're going to get a deal under contract and then people are going to start asking you stuff, lenders or whatever, and you're going to have no idea what they're talking about. And you're not going to know who to go get. And then now you're scrambling for people to, on your team, uh, to get on your team to that can, you know, wear this hat for you. So, um, yeah, so you need to figure out what roles of that, of a syndication team or a GP or whatever you want to call it, JV that, uh, you can actually wear. And then now when you put all that together, you have, uh, you want to find people that are, that like doing the things you don't like doing that have strengths where you're weak, right? And that can pick up the hats that you can't wear. So when you're done with the spreadsheet, you have a bunch of traits uh, that you need in a person. And now you can go and uh, start looking for that person. And then on top of that, uh, and I think this is often overlooked until it's disastrous, is definitely pay attention to uh, or vet people based off of like their character, their goals, um, what, va- what things they hold, uh, you know, what values they have, uh, what their timeline is, is, is absolutely critical because you want people on your team that not only can wear all that, all those other things I just talked about, but are also going in the same direction you are, because it's going to be really bad if you fill, you know, you fill a team uh, member spot and their timeline is like three years and your timeline is in 10 years. Now, what's that going to do in meetings when you're talking about disposition of properties and, and, and you know, recapitalizing um, from doing a refi or something like that? You know, they're like, I need money now. And you're like, I'm in this for the long game, right? So uh, that, that's another thing is sit down, have those real conversations before you get into uh, a uh, partnership because it's almost like a marriage that can end very badly. So uh, definitely want to do that. Yeah, I, I say that. I'm sorry, Vince, we yeah, think that it makes more sense to joint venture at first. And then once you see that you guys have similar values and your goals align and you guys work well together, then from there, maybe form the, the partnership later on. Do you think that makes some sense? Uh, JVs and partnerships are kind of the same thing. Um, like you're still, you're still together on that deal. You're still all on the same, you're still in that same boat, whether you're in a JV or, or a partnership, unless you want to do it to like you write into the deal, like, here's your, you know, easy out clause. Um, if, you know, we get down the road, uh, you know, a year or two and you want to bounce, um, put it that way. But uh, I don't know, Brian, what do you think on that one? 
I, I think there, there's definitely ways to, to test drive a relationship. Um, but, you know, it, it's really hard. It, it's difficult is the answer, because unless you know the people fairly well, um, you know, you, you want to make sure there's, there's as many, many things codified as possible. You know, so when I first came into partnership with my, my, my Four Oaks uh, partners, um, we weren't Four Oaks, you know, and we spent a lot of time talking about a lot of things that been said, you know, what, what's our long term, you know, what's, what are we looking to get out of the, out of the relationship? What are we looking to get out of the partnership? What are we looking to get out of the assets? And unfortunately, everything for us lined up as far as timelines and goals. Um, and that extremely fortunate that, that was the case. Um, but we, we sat down and we probably spent, you know, two to three hours on, on one afternoon just talking about all the hats, you know, who's wearing the hats, what the compensation is going to be, just to make sure that it was all 100% clear prior to and in writing prior to, you know. And by the time we were done with that long and painful conversation, we, we had a, a roadmap that we all agreed to. So, um, you know, for, for me, that was, that was kind of the test drive. You know, they were all in agreement with everything else, and we started operating in that manner. And, you know, after several months of, of doing that, we realized that everything was working smoothly and we decided to be exclusive. So the first deal we came together as four individuals, you know, everything past that is now, you know, four Oaks capital. If that makes sense. Right. So you formed an actual company after the first deal. Once you realized that, Hey, you guys work well together. Now we can go ahead and do this as like one entity. Yes. That, that's exactly what we did. Cool. And that's something like I said, you want to, especially if you're going into syndication, um, because one thing that syndication has that you know JVs and partnerships really don't have is the brand aspect. You're really creating um, a very you know public brand image that you're going to be marketing, uh, like the Four Oaks Capital, like the Tri City Equity. That that piece is very uh, very important in the syndication world, where it's not so much in the the partnership and JV world, because um, a lot of it's just you know people with. Uh, usually a lot of equity and, and, and things like that are going to come together and close a deal in a lot more private manner. Um, so none of that stuff really uh, matters as much. Um, so if you're going to go to the syndication route, that's uh, just another thing. Like you want to make sure your partners are all aligned, not just on the the private stuff, like the the goals, timelines, and everything like that, but also the way that you carry yourself when you're, you're uh, doing things like this, like podcasts or uh, shows or your marketing strategy or, or investor relations, you're all on the same page because you don't want no chucklehead out there, you know, acting a fool because that's going to directly reflect on you and your company. So you're guilty by association um, mm-hmm. it, when, when that stuff happens. You know, they go out to a conference and they start acting like, you know, an idiot wearing, you know, a shirt, you know, Finney Capital shirt uh, or something like that, then that's going to reflect badly. So you, that has an extra piece on it too of making sure that when, when you're syndicating and you're branding and you're marketing that everybody understands that this isn't, you know, it, it's a little bit different. You're a little bit more, you know, scrutinized or, or in the public yeah. eye a little bit more. Because you have to put yourself out there to attract capital because nobody knows you exist. You don't exist. So, yeah. Right. Um, and then another question that I actually was wondering, you spoke briefly about um, the underwriting process and during COVID, how you guys are being a little bit more conservative and some of the numbers. Um, I'm curious what you're seeing as far as like from the lender's perspective, like 
are they um, really uptight with, with uh, you know, the underwriting these days? Have you seen it change drastically or is it pretty much still the same as it was, say, a year ago? It has changed. Uh, well, man, it's it seems like every time I call them, it's different. Uh, so it's very like ripsaw right now. Yeah. Um, I will say the interest rates are absolutely killer. Um, yeah, we got a sub four, uh, a sub four rate with uh, twenty. What is it? Twenty five percent LTC. So we we're able to uh, load in some some construction costs on that as well. Um, and then we got zero prepayment penalty. So, so that, that, that was awesome on like a 10 year term, um, or no 20 year term, 20 year IO, uh, 25 year IO, something like that. And then, so the, the terms were actually are great right now. I think what, what's killing people is that if they require, uh, those reserves, those, those, um, PI or pity reserves for 12 or 18 months. And even then I see like one week I hear banks are doing it or, or lenders are doing it. And then another week they're not. So uh, obviously there's a huge asterisk next to that because it depends on the, the quality of asset. You know, where is it a reposition? Is it distress? Is it stabilized? Is it, you know, A class versus C class? So there's a lot of asterisks to it, but uh, generally I think the, the terms right now are great. It's the, uh, that reserves, I think is what is kind of hit or miss. I know Brian's probably a lot more yeah. Uh, plugged in than I am since he's in a deal right now. Yeah. You know, lending tightened up when, you know, the market shut down, you know, mid-March significant portion of the lending world just completely closed their doors, you know, so the bridge lending completely dried up. Um, you know, the, the agency debt, you know, was asking for these ridiculous reserves, but uh, um, you know, right now we're, we're looking at for the deal we have under contract right now, we're looking at uh, regular old bank loans. You know, we put an application in with a credit union, put an application in with a bank that we've worked before. Both of them are portfolio lenders. Basically, what that means is they're they're holding the loan, they're servicing the loan on their books. They're not reselling it on the secondary market, which you know most banks do. So there, there's always somebody out there who can do things a little differently. Most of the lending in most of the lending today, people are, are packaging up loans and they're selling it on the secondary market. They're becoming parts of the, these large securities, you know, in, in uh, different investment funds. But if you can find that portfolio lender, you know, portfolio lender, they're, they're keeping on the books. So their risk tolerance is their own risk tolerance, you know? So, and, you know, we're, we're finding right now that sometimes a portfolio lender is the best place to go. They'll have slightly better terms, um, may not have the best rate, but they'll, they'll be able to do more for you. So we're looking at getting an 80% loan to cost, um, but we're going to be low to mid force, you know? So overall terms I think are good. You just got to shop around. Yeah, absolutely. Shop around. And then some lesson learned for me was when you're shopping around, so you're going to create kind of like a, a list of possible lenders when you get a deal under contract. And then what a lot of people do is one, one of them starts pulling ahead, like one lender starts pulling ahead. And then all the other like three or four lenders you talk to kind of fall by the wayside. Don't let that happen, right? Because you need to plug all those lenders and keep them engaged and keep it all moving forward until they give you a loan commitment. Because what's going to happen is you're going to go you know, with this lender and then these other ones fall by the wayside and you don't talk to them for like a month or so. And then down the road, like this one lender that you're going with, they might pull chocks on you and like say, nope, sorry, we're, you know, we're not, we're not going to fund this loan. And then now you have to scramble. I called like hey, all those three lenders like, Hey, sorry, I ghosted you for, you know, the last month. Uh, can we push that package through and like, <laughs> you know, try to save face and get, and that's what we had to do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That. So it was a very rookie mistake on us. Um, 
because we bought into, you know, the loan officer was talking a big talk and we pushed the loan through. And then all of a sudden, uh, again, the, the, the COVID hit and they wanted, uh, I forget what the requirement was, but they came back with something crazy that, and they were, they were, they drew the line in the sand and they're like, I know we promised you this, but now it's this and we're not, we're not budging on it. And a lot of it was the, the, the COVID uh, stuff. And we're sitting there like, we, we absolutely cannot do that. This, this will not work. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we, we went back and re-engaged some of the other lenders uh, that we were talking to when we first got the deal on a contract. And that lender just took us through to the finish line with amazing terms. Even during, like I said, April 15th, we closed. Even during the height of uh, COVID, uh, he, he, he followed through, uh, kept his word. So lesson learned is there is get as many community banks as you can or whatever lenders you can and keep them engaged all the way through until one of them gives you a loan commitment um, yeah. is a lesson learned there. Yeah. All right, Penny, we've got time for one more question. So fire away. Sure. Uh, Vince, I was also wondering um, with most of the syndications that take place, I feel like um, the system is sort of, it's, it has built in, in it, um, the actual equity coming from the investors and, you know, all the moving parts. But the main question I guess I have is as far as like the closing costs, like where are those coming from most of the time? Because most of the people syndicating the deals, um, they don't necessarily have a lot of capital and that's why they're finding investors and they're trying to syndicate in the first place. So let's just say we're talking about hundred thousand dollars of closing costs, which, you know, most people may not have in their back pocket. (laughs) How would most uh, syndicators go about like finding that capital? Yeah. You have to find somebody to pick up that hat. So, and then when I go Mm -hmm. back to, remember when I mentioned earlier that somebody has to wear that at risk capital hat and and hold that or, um, and that that's going to be not only the EMD, right? That's, and that's why I'm I'm saying at risk capital, not just EMD because the EMD is just one part of it. You have all the legal fees just to talk, you know, open conversations with the SEC attorney, you're dropping 10 grand just to start, right? That's sunk, right? Sunk costs. All the inspections, sunk costs, all the everything, getting the, the loans pushed through, the appraisals, all that stuff, sunk costs, phase ones, um, environmental, stuff like that, yeah. sunk costs. You're never getting that back. So the EMD might be, you know, 1%, but you're going to have another 20, 30 grand of just costs that are, that are gone. You walk away from this deal. It, you're not getting that back. So the two the two things on that is you're going to need somebody part of your team that has that kind of capital, and that can come from a lot of times it comes from like a HELOC. Right? If you're starting out, you can be creative. You can do a HELOC. You can tap into some kind of uh, 401k loan or something like that, because um, a lot of people just aren't sitting on that type of cash uh, initially when they're starting out. So you got it. You can be creative on it. Um, you know, it can come from lines of credit or something like that. Uh, just make sure you have a plan because uh, that'll go into my second part here in a minute. Uh, but ideally, you find when you're doing that personal audit, building the team of thinking about who needs to be on my team. If you don't have, you know, 60, 70, 80 grand um, for, for most of the smaller deals that you're probably going to be looking at those around the 50 unit deals um, of, of capital to put down as EMD and, and the initial closing costs, then uh, you're going to need to find somebody to wear that hat. And then in the before I go on to the second part, there are going to be two. So there's going to be your sunk costs, your at-risk capital, but then it, when you close, you're going to get reimbursed for, you're going to raise, uh, when you go to your, your fundraise, you're going to add that stuff into your raise as well. So once you get to the close and you're doing the, the distribution of everything, you're going to pay back yourself or whoever for all of those costs. So if you close, then you're good. You just recapitalize yourself. 
but you're going to need somebody to, or something, some way to uh, put that at-risk capital up in the first place. And that's what I was saying. If, you, if it's not you, you got to find somebody to do that because um, you can't go under contract on a deal and not have money to yep. to pay the SEC attorney to, to do the inspections or do the proper due diligence, buy plane tickets to fly there, put yourself up for a week while you, while you walk the grounds and stuff like that. That needs to be uh, handled. Um, and then the second part of that was um, if you're in a position where you're putting your kids, you know, college fund up for at-risk capital um, and you can't afford to lose that money and walk away from that deal, you probably shouldn't be doing that deal, right? Because that's going to, that's going to put you in a position where you're going to start bending your criteria and your, your hard line minimums uh, in order to make a deal work. So if you put yourself in a position where I have to make this deal work, I can't afford to lose that EMD or I can't afford to lose those sunk costs. So I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, bend, bend my occupancy a little bit here, bend my, you know, uh, working capital budget here, you know, kind of shave off a hundred grand for my, for my CapEx budget. Um, and you're just like closing the deal and, and all of a sudden like, well, maybe, you know, I, yeah, I'm sure, I, I'm sure I can, you know, raise rents $250. So that's the only way the deal is going to work. Sure, I can do that. If you're putting yourself in your position where you're creating these like performers that are just absurd and not realistic and not especially not conservative, um, then you probably shouldn't be doing that deal, uh, at least the way you're doing it by yourself or with your current team. So you have to, with your at-risk capital, you have to be 100% okay that when you, when you wire that in or when you start making that, that if this deal doesn't go through, you're going to be, it's going to sting, it, it sucks, but you're not going to be, you know, losing, uh, you know, your kids, you know, your child or college fund or something like or that. Or your house. Yeah. Or your house. Exactly. If you did HELOC or something like that. So yeah. don't put yourself in that position. Don't uh, put yourself in a position where you have to close the deal because of your at-risk capital. You, yeah. you probably shouldn't be doing the deal. Um, yeah. One thing I'll add to that is, is lenders are going to require a certain amount of um, liquid liquidity in, in your partnership. So it's not just the at-risk capital that goes up, but when the lenders are evaluating the deal and the team, they're typically going to insist that a certain percentage of, you know, wh- whether it's measured in, you know, how many months worth of, of loan payments or whether it's, you know, percentage of the, the loan, they're going to insist that you have a certain amount of liquidity there. And if you don't have that personally, that's, that's something you're gonna have to go find in a partner, you know? So, um, all right. Well, we're, we're about out of time here. Uh, one question for, for each of you at the very end. Um, Vince, first, first for you, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yep. So we have, uh, we run the Honolulu Multifamily and More uh, Facebook group, um, part of uh, Jamie Gruber's uh, team out there. So the Honolulu chapter of the Multifamily and More brand, um, virtual meetup. You can come find us there and, and network with us virtually if you're not out here in Hawaii and want to stop by. And you can also find us at our website, tricityequity.com. You can reach out to us there. Uh, my partner, Duke, wrote a passive investing guide, which is, it's awesome. He wrote that out, crushed it out um, in a couple of weeks. And it's a bunch of overview of what large multifamily looks like. Um, and a lot of the questions that you need to be asking yourself and operators as you're looking to maybe possibly get into uh, being a limited partner or join a team like Finney is here. Um, of joining an existing team or something like that of uh, getting onto a, a syndication team. So uh, definitely a great resource there to go download that. Obviously it's free. 
All right. And we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, but uh, you know, just, just throw my two cents in. I met Duke in Los Angeles in January, pre COVID, you know, great guy, wicked smart. So I imagine that passive investing guide is, is a pretty quality product. So tricityequity.com and then the Honolulu meetup group. We'll make sure that stuff's in the show notes. All right, Penny, same question for you. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Sure. Um, so anyone can reach me at my email at pennyrealestate at gmail.com, as well as my website, which is plcapitalventures.com. And I also, because I am uh, new to this business and I've sort of been jotting down all the keynotes and information and all the uh, you know, uh, help that, that I was able to get from experienced investors. So I, was, I pretty much put that all into an ebook and that's on my website. I'd love to be able to help out new aspiring investors to be able to uh, sort of feed off of the um, journey that I've been on up to this point and help as many people as possible, you know, get to their financial freedom in, in their life. Awesome. Hey, well, thanks to both of you for coming on the show. I think you added a ton of value, um, you know, some free stuff on each one of their websites, your passive investing guide and, and then, you know, Penny's ebook as well. So check those products out. And, uh, you know, once again, I very much enjoyed having you guys on the show today. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.